Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a military history podcast for non-military listeners about battles and conflicts that change the course of history. Hello, I'm your host, Chip Wagar, and today we're going to talk about a 19th century battle. Uh, The battles in our first two podcasts were 20th century battles, the battles of Tannenberg in 1914 and Moscow in 1941. The battle we're going to be talking about today uh, will be more obscure to most listeners. It's the Battle of Königgratz. In 1866. But before we get to that battle, I'd like to remind all our listeners, as I always do at the beginning of these podcasts, that we also have a website at www.killingtimepodcast.com. Please come visit the website and learn more about the various battles that we are highlighting on this podcast series and comment on whether you like the podcast, what you like about it, what you don't like about it. You can also um, join our mailing list and be among the first to know uh, what our next podcast will be about. In this case, I will tip you off in advance and let you know that um, we're going to be listening to the Battle of Waterloo in our fourth battle in our series. Uh, But you would know this if you visited our website. So, um, by all means, come and visit with us and let us know how you feel about the broadcast. And now to the battle. Few battles are as interesting to me and as influential to the arc of history as much as this one that I'll be sharing with you in this podcast. Indeed, had this battle ended differently, the battles of Tannenberg and Moscow would probably never have been fought. Indeed, perhaps the First and Second World Wars might not have happened either, and the history of Europe and the world might have been different altogether. One of the reasons this battle is largely obscure today is because The Battle of Königgratz was fought between three countries that no longer exist, the kingdoms of Prussia and Saxony and the Empire of Austria. It was quite a famous battle in its day, though. In terms of casualties, it ranks about equal with the Battle of Gettysburg in the American Civil War. Uh, That battle was fought in 1863, only three years earlier. Although the numbers accumulated in the Battle of Gettysburg occurred over three days, while Königgratz matched it in one. It's also about similar in casualties to the Battle of Waterloo, which was fought about a half century earlier and ended the Napoleonic period uh, in 1815. 
The casualties in this one-day battle were about double those of the Battle of Antietam, another American Civil War battle fought only a few years earlier, which ranks as the most bloody battle fought in a single day in American history. So it's a pretty big battle. The outcome of the battle decided the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 and was instrumental in the unification of Germany under Prussian domination only five years later. The aftermath of Königgratz and Sedan, which followed, established a new German empire in the middle of Europe with a military prowess that had grown to legendary proportions as a result of these wars and these battles. A genius in war was the gift that Helmuth von Moltke and the general staff of the Prussian kingdom and later German Reichs bequeathed to the men who ruled in Berlin for better or for worse in the years to come. Let's place this war in time and context before we go on. 1866 was about halfway through the historical 19th century, almost perfectly midway between the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 and the start of the First World War in 1914. The railroad was a major technological development since the time of Napoleon. So was the telegraph. Again, the parallels with Gettysburg to an American listener. Both of these technological advances had been exploited frequently and increasingly sophisticated ways during the American Civil War, likewise in Europe. In Austria's 1859 war with the Kingdom of Piedmont and France, the world witnessed the first railroad mobilization as the French and the army of Napoleon III transported 130,000 French troops to Italy by rail. Both the Prussians and Austrians would use rail transport to mobilize and locate their armies in that war, although with vastly different results. Armies were significantly larger than all but the very largest of the armies that grappled in Napoleonic contests in both America and Europe. Nearly half a million men would fight on July 3, 1866, at the Battle of Königgrätz. These numbers brought with them logistical complexities of movement, supply, and control over huge armies that sprawled over dozens and dozens of miles of road while on the march. Army organization into corps, divisions, brigades, regiments, battalions, squadrons, and companies, each with their own command structure, challenged leaders such as Prussia's von Moltke and Austria's Benedek. Yet the commanding general and his staff had to accept this administrative and managerial challenge that could well decide the fate of their armies. We shall see that in this case each side handled the challenge differently, but both experienced its difficulties. Firepower was a major change since the time of the War of 1812 in America or the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. The rifle, as opposed to the musket, was now de rigueur as the basic infantry weapon with a bayonet. Before I discuss this further, I'd like to say that in this podcast I've relied heavily on Jeffrey Warrow's 
book um, about the Austro-Prussian War. Jeffrey Warrow is a uh, Ph.D. Yale graduate, 1992, and professor of military history at the University of North Texas. And he based his uh, doctoral dissertation in part on this same war that I'm about to talk about, under the supervision of Paul Kennedy, who wrote, of course, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Warrow has, in my opinion, the very best military, political, and historical book on the war that I know of. He pointed out the nature of how the rifle changed warfare, um, both the rifled weapon carried by the infantry and rifled artillery, uh, both of which had a huge role at Königsgratz. Rifle technology increased the range of an infantryman from 120 meters uh, with muskets to 1,200 meters, a tenfold increase. And rifled artillery similarly went from the old smoothbore uh, of about 1,000 meters uh, to 7,000 meters by 1859. So let's discuss the context of the war before we plunge into the details of the war itself and this decisive battle. What was the European continent like in the middle of the 19th century? Well, it was quite different from what it would be at the end of the same century, in no small part from what we're going to talk about today. And let's remember in this time the economic, military, and political vortex of the world was Europe. Victorian Britain ruled the seas and a still-growing overseas empire and was the richest, most economically powerful nation on earth. The French, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, and even Danish and Belgian overseas territories occupied most of the globe outside North and South America. The U.S. had just finished its civil war a year earlier and was only just beginning to heal the deep wounds of that war, especially in the South. It was at this point just a regional power, not yet ready or willing to project its power and influence worldwide, as some of the European powers were and did. But on the continent of Europe, no country was more powerful or influential in the first half of the 19th century than the Austrians with their capital in Vienna. Between the end of the Napoleonic War in 1815 and the Battle of Königgrätz in 1866, the Austrian Empire had been the dominant power in Central Europe and for much of the time, in many respects, the most powerful empire in continental Europe, aside from Russia. The Austrian Habsburg monarchy had their fingers in every central European pie, including territorial possessions in Italy and unquestioned dominance over the multitude of independent German states, including Prussia in central Europe. Numerous nominally independent Italian and German states owed their independence to Austrian bayonets propping up their ruling monarchies and were therefore loyal allies of the Austrian monarchy. One might even say in modern parlance they were satellites or puppet states. In both Italy and Germany the rising tide of nationalism and the dream of united Italy and Germany were blocked by Austrian power. 
For both nations, unification would only be possible by the defeat and expulsion of Austria and her allies, which, until 1859, seemed impossible. But Austria was weakened by the revolutions that swept the continent in 1848, including within the Austrian Empire. She had also alienated Russia, her former ally, by siding with the Western powers in the Crimean War of 1854 and 56, while not actually entering it and achieving anything for it. Lastly, the illusion of Austria's presumed dominant military power was punctured by a quick defeat by France and the Kingdom of Piedmont at Solferino during a short war in 1859. The new kingdom of Italy that emerged after the war had thereafter absorbed Austria's Italian allies in the wake of Austria's defeat, leaving only Venice and the Alpine Trentino area remaining under Austrian control. Italy and Prussia therefore found in each other natural allies against the common Austrian enemy. After 1859, relations between the two warmed, and by 1866 had reached the point of an alliance that would result in a simultaneous war against the colossal empire at the same time. Austria would have to divide its otherwise overwhelmingly larger army and resources between the Italians in the south and the Prussians in the north, and that was exactly what happened. 75,000 Austrian bayonets, or about a third of the Austrian army, was to remain in Italy, while about 215,000 were mobilized to face the more dangerous Prussians in the north. The pretext for the war was a dispute over the administration of two North German states, Schleswig and Holstein, which had been lost by Denmark to the German states and was administered thereafter by both Prussia and Austria. Prussia had offered to buy off Austria to enable her to annex these two small provinces, but Austria had resisted, seeing it as yet another step in Prussia's growing power in Germany and preferring to keep the two provinces out of Prussia. The Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck forced a crisis by invading Holstein, which forced Austria to respond. Most of the German states were by 1866 also suspicious and fearful of being absorbed by Prussia and allied themselves with Austria and the war was on by June 13, 1866. It, that was a little bit of the Radetzky March, the sort of um, number one song for the Austrian military and the Austrian monarchy, all the way to the end of World War One, uh, named after, of course, the famous Marshal. Like most battles that change the course of history, this, the outcome of this battle, the victory of the Kingdom of Prussia, seemed improbable at the outset, and here's why. First of all, Austria was a great power of the first rank, and had been since the late 17th century. 
its population and resources for war were far larger than either Prussia or its ally Italy put together. In 1866, the Austrian emperor had the manpower and resources to summon ten army corps of about 85,000 men apiece, an army almost four times as large as that of Prussia and double the size of Prussia and Italy put together. Given time, Austria could and would bring crushing numerical and resource superiority to a war, unless a quick knockout blow could be delivered early on, as Napoleon had done. Secondly, although Prussia had Italy as an ally, Austria had virtually every other significant German state in the Confederation on its side, including Bavaria, Württemberg, Saxony, Hanover, Hesse, and Baden, adding some 150,000 bayonets to Austria's already colossal army at the beginning of the war. In sheer numbers, Austria and its allies combined for some 365,000 men mobilized to Prussia's 225,000, on paper at least, at the outset of the war. In a matter of six weeks, Austria alone concentrated an army equal in size to Prussia's in its adjoining province of Bohemia. By the way, that's now the western half of the Czech Republic uh, on the modern map. While the other German states' armies arrayed themselves on Prussia's southern and western borders, forcing Prussia to defend itself on all sides. This while Austria simultaneously mobilized another army, the southern army, in Italy, which would soundly defeat the Italian army at the Second Battle of Custoza on June 24th nine days before Königgratz, effectively knocking Italy out of the war. Thirdly, Austria had the advantage of internal lines compared to Prussia and Italy. In other words, it could theoretically shift and maneuver its forces over relatively short distances within the western provinces of its empire to concentrate quickly where they were needed, while Prussia's and Italy's armies were never able to combine or even come within hundreds of kilometers of each other, separated by the Alps. For example, the distance between Custoza, a small town in Italy about 100 miles east of Venice, to Königgratz was nearly a thousand kilometers. The military commander of the Northern Army was Field Marshal Ludwig Benedek, who had salvaged great fame at Solferino by roundly defeating the Piedmontese army while the French had cracked the Austrian defenses. He had then maneuvered his field army well to provide cover for the withdrawing imperial army as it left the battlefield for the safety of the quadrilateral. Nonetheless, the Prussians had an answer for all this, their commander Helmuth von Moltke and the needle gun. Helmuth von Moltke is sometimes known to military history as Moltke the Elder, to differentiate him from his young nephew, who would go on to become the chief of the German general staff in 1914 at the outbreak of World War I. That Helmuth von Moltke is known as Moltke the Younger. In any event, let's talk about the opposing commanders before we begin to talk about the campaign itself and the famous battle. The elder Moltke 
who was by no means old at the time of Königgratz, was in my opinion the greatest military mind of the 19th century, and his achievements speak for themselves. The campaign we're about to explore and the ultimate battle of Königgratz, along with the Franco-Prussian War and the Battle of Sedan, are his greatest and best-known victories, which resulted in the unification of Germany under Prussian rule. But these wars and battles obscure his genius as a student of war, like few others, and an innovator of strategy and tactics. In his battlefield maneuvering, he could be compared to Robert E. Lee, or, slightly earlier in history, the great Radetzky, who had died by the time of Königgratz. As an innovator who grasped the importance of cutting-edge technological innovation and its implementation into practical, effective, and revolutionary military tactics, you would have to compare him to Napoleon in the past or to Hans Guderian in the future, who grasped the importance of tanks and the tactics of massed panzer formations in modern war. Moltke had carefully and diligently planned for the war with Austria, beginning at least two years earlier, correctly foreseeing how it would erupt and how Prussia would have to deal with the combined forces of Austria and her allies in Germany. He dismissed any idea of a defensive strategy which would surely lead to the slow, methodical trampling of Prussia's army scattered across Germany from Berlin to the Rhine. Instead, von Moltke conceived an extremely aggressive and risky strategy of immediately annihilating the small German states in the west and south before Austria could mobilize her vast army and move into Germany. Then he would turn on Austria with virtually the entire Prussian army and attempt to defeat it in one roll of the dice, a sort of bet-the-kingdom battle. It has to be realized that in 1866... A corps of, say, 30,000 men, with their baggage, equipment, and, slowest of all, their artillery, required about 50 kilometers of open road to move. An entire field army, consisting of several corps, could, if forced to march one unit behind the next, in echelon, as they say, might occupy 150 to 200 kilometers of road. Should it encounter an enemy army in place waiting for it, the head of the column would be overwhelmed while the rear marched for perhaps several days to arrive at the battlefield. Obviously, such an absurd state of affairs could never be permitted by any competent military commander. Napoleon had made use of parallel roads and dispersal of his forces at the beginning of the century to move his armies across France and Germany, and so would von Moltke, now with the addition of rail transport. Yet, in the dispersed mode, any single column of any field army was exposed to isolation, envelopment, and defeat. Thus, of critical importance to commanders of that day was to know just when to concentrate at the last possible moment so as to bring maximum force to bear at the decisive point at great speed. Here, by 1866, the telegraph was an indispensable tool for the high command. Von Moltke could and did direct the movement of his three field armies from Berlin, using the telegraph and the rail lines in the early weeks of the war, 
Just as the American Secretary of War Halleck was able to move U.S. federal armies in the Civil War the same way from Washington. Von Moltke was at home and easy with technological advances and new weapons, while, as we will see, his Austrian counterpart was not. Which brings us now to the famous Dreyse needle gun, which was issued to the Prussian infantry as its standard rifle several years before the Danish war in 1864, when Prussia was Austria's ally. The Austrians, indeed, had had a good look at this weapon in action, as Geoffrey Warrow points out in his book, but they had not been impressed. The gun had several drawbacks. One was its unfortunate tendency sometimes to have a leak in its um, chamber that caused sparks to fly into the face of the soldier using it. It also had a much uh, lower muzzle velocity, which uh, restricted its range and killing power as compared to contemporary rifles, muzzle-loading rifles of the day. In the hands of inexperienced soldiers or panicky soldiers, it can consume tremendous amounts of ammunition in a skirmish, leaving the soldier basically without any weapon or any ammunition for his weapon at all. This was quite different from the muzzle-loading rifle, which was usually fired in volleys by trained officers directing fire uh, rather than the soldiers using the weapon themselves. In any event... The breech-loading Dreyse needle gun could be loaded and fired at a rate of 10 to 12 times per minute, while the muzzle-loading Austrian Lorenz rifle could, under the best of circumstances, get off only a round or two per minute. Moreover, to load the Austrian weapon, a soldier had to be standing up with a ramrod pushing the cartridge down the muzzle. His implementation of it Drilling the Prussian infantry with new linear fire tactics would literally save the day in a couple of critical instances during the Battle of Königgrätz. Prussian soldiers were practiced with marksmanship exercises and fire tactics unique in European armies of the day. To put it plainly, by the time of Königgrätz, the Prussian infantrymen not only had a superior weapon, he knew how to use it in group fire tactics to devastating effect. Austrian soldiers, by contrast, were trained and drilled in the shock tactics employed by Napoleon I and Napoleon III, and which had broken Austrian ranks at Solferino. The Austrians were overly impressed with the massed columns and bayonet charges that the French had hurled at the Austrians dug in on the low hills of a monastery, while the Kaiser's army had fired volleys of rifle and artillery fire into their ranks. While the French did break the Austrian lines with the bayonet, they had suffered hideous casualties, one of the reasons the French emperor had been only too happy to proclaim victory and immediately end the war when Austria offered the opportunity to do so. Now it would be Austrian bayonets against Prussian firing lines and artillery, but unlike the Austrians, the Schnellfeuer, or fast fire, of the Prussians would carry the day at several points on the battlefield, where the slower Austrian muzzle-loading rifles had failed against the French. Von Moltke's appreciation of the impact 
that long, thin lines of rapidly firing rifles would have on massed packs of advancing infantry was a gamble that hit the jackpot in 1866. But as Waro points out, it was neither the only nor even the main cause of the Austrian defeat. talk about the Austrian commander a bit, Ludwig Benedek. Benedek was, as I mentioned, the sole hero of the Battle of Solferino. In the aftermath of the defeat, the 29-year-old monarch, Franz Joseph, sacked his then chief of staff, the 72-year-old field marshal, Heinrich Hess, for Benedek, a younger, popular general who was to prove in the event even more incompetent. Benedict was born a commoner, the son of a provincial doctor. He grew up a Germanized Hungarian, which made him politically acceptable for enrollment in the Austrian Military Academy in Vienna, from which he graduated at the top of his class in 1822. Thereafter, he steadily rose in the military ranks, displaying personal bravery and talent, achieving the rank of lieutenant colonel by 1843. In the revolutions and rebellions that convulsed Austrian Lombardy and Venetia in 1848, he was very active in the service of the monarchy in suppressing them. For his service, he was knighted, and in 1849 served as the legendary Radetzky's chief of staff during the war with Piedmont, that ended with the Austrians' crushing victory at the First Battle of Custoza. After further service in Hungary, he was made a field marshal. The problem was that while Benedict was a very good and aggressive commander of a brigade, a division, even an army corps, he had no talent, experience, or even the intellectual curiosity to learn the business of commanding entire armies on a wide front with strategic objectives. Thus, while his legendary defeat of the Italians at Solferino singled him out in 1859 as Austria's most promising military commander, he only appeared so in comparison to the aging and incompetent Austrian generals sacked and cashiered after that war. At this crucial point in its 600-year history, so often studded with outstanding military commanders such as Wallenstein, Eugene of Savoy, and Radetzky, the Habsburg talent cupboard was largely bare. To his colleagues, especially the elite aristocratic military caste that overwhelmingly populated the Habsburg army, Benedict was coarse and vulgar, which accentuated his common origins. He was vocally anti-intellectual, boasting that he, quote, hadn't read a book since military school, unquote, 
and that, again I quote, the only talents required in a chief of staff are a strong stomach and good digestion. In Gunther Rothenberg's book, The Armies of Franz Joseph, Benedict is described succinctly as a believer, quote, in a traditional concept of war, where valor and courage were of chief importance, where simple rules were superior to complicated calculations. Following in this vein, he opposed the notion of a national Prussian-style general staff of officers selected for their education and intellect. Benedict's boredom with the intellectual rigors of military logistics, planning, strategy, and operational concepts, let alone any interest in new technology and tactics, while not the sole cause of defeat, was probably the single most important one, as we'll see. So now let's turn to the campaign itself that led up to the great battle of Königgrätz. The easy part of the campaign, as von Moltke suspected, would be the defeat of the lesser German states, which the Prussians managed to do quite quickly. The various rulers and elderly gentlemen generals of these individually small German states failed to combine and concentrate their small armies into one cohesive fighting formation, which might have had a chance against the outnumbered Prussians. Ludicrously, Several of them refused to allow their troops to abandon their indefensible homelands, for example, to link up with each other and defend their neighbors. Nor would they retreat en masse or even individually into Austria, where they could join up with the Imperial Army, except for Saxony. As a result, the poorly trained and even more poorly led toy soldiers of the Federal German Army were engaged ad Syriatum by the Prussian army of the West and routed one by one. The price for this military incompetence of these minor states would be the direct annexation of most of them into the Prussian kingdom or condemnation to perpetual servience to Prussia as satellite states at the conclusion of the war. The one exception was Saxony, whose homeland largely bordered Austrian Bohemia, and Prussian Silesia. Astutely realizing the hopelessness of defending their magnificent capital, Dresden, or holding up against the rapidly concentrating Prussian army that swarmed into Saxony, the Saxons gave up Dresden without a fight and hightailed it into Bohemia, where they could potentially do some good. There they were a potent fighting force with almost 30,000 men alongside the Austrian Imperial Army at the Battle of Königgratz. The Prussian mobilization and concentration of its army was breathtaking in its speed and organization. While Austria had spent its military budgets before the war constructing or improving their immense fortifications, including the so-called Northern Quadrilateral of fortifications, which included Königgratz and Josefstadt, Prussia had largely abandoned its fortress program and instead concentrated on improving its network of railways, which dumped tens of thousands of blue-clad Prussian soldiers, cavalry, and artillery in three major staging areas on the periphery of Bohemia. Given Benedict's pre-war reputation as a highly aggressive soldier's soldier, 
Most armchair observers of the conflict in Europe expected a quick, violent Austrian lunge into Prussia's adjoining province, Silesia, where von Moltke had concentrated what would become the first army of about 110,000 men under the Prussian crown prince Frederick William, or Fred Friedrich Wilhelm in German, who was the son of the current king, Wilhelm I, and heir to the Prussian throne. He would later become Emperor Frederick III, but only rule for a very short time due to illness with cancer. Nonetheless, this lunge never came. Von Moltke concentrated south and west of the crown prince another army group, the second army under Prince Friedrich Karl. Yet further to the south and west was positioned the third, or Elba, army under General Herwath von Bittenfeld. So he had essentially an arc positioned around the bulge or salient of Austrian Bohemia, again today's Czech Republic. Von Moltke began the invasion of the Austrian Empire with the idea of pushing through the formidable mountains studding the periphery of Bohemia, through a few strategic passes. Eventually, he expected to encounter and hopefully envelop the Austrian army located somewhere beyond the mountains. The central problem and signal risk posed by von Moltke's invasion plan was the fact that, until the moment of truth, his three armies would be dispersed and, of course, vulnerable to isolation, attack, and defeat by the entire massed Austrian northern army two or three times the size of any one of the three Prussian field armies. Thus, the telegraph lines buzzed with daily soundings and instructions to and from von Moltke as the campaign progressed. The fact that each of the three armies would have to pass through narrow mountain passes before emerging out the other side, perhaps into the waiting arms of an entrenched Austrian force, simply compounded the problem and the risk. Theoretically, a small, compact force of Austrian infantry, backed by artillery, would have been able to block and annihilate the head of a column of Prussians that straggled for some 50 kilometers or more to the rear, emerging from the pass. And indeed, that would happen, uh, although it was not a decisive uh, victory when it did, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But certainly, even a small force of Austrians could delay an entire field army coming through the mountain passes, while the remainder of the Austrian northern army pounced on one of the other field armies a day or two's march away. Nonetheless, the lunge never came and foreshadowed much of what was to come, a remarkable and ultimately fatal paralysis of command and control, resulting in a static passive defensive strategy that essentially allowed von Moltke's strategy to succeed. In fairness to the Austrian Field Marshal Benedict, an aggressive attack by the Northern Army pouncing on one or the other of the separated Prussian Field Armies never came because, much like the situation in 1859, Austria's war machine was ponderously slow to mobilize or move to any critical point. Although he was partly to blame for this situation, since he had served as chief of staff for a number of years before, his predecessors and his successor, Henrik Stein, were equally or more to blame. 
Garrisons from far-flung provinces of a huge empire had to make their way to the Moravian fortress town of Olmutz, the concentration point for the Austrian Northern Army, often on foot. The meager rail system into Olmutz, and indeed the slender single rail lines from areas like Transylvania, the Benat, Croatia, Dalmatia, Hungary, and the Alpine areas of Austria itself were woefully inadequate. In many cases, masses of peasant conscripts from rural farmlands had to march on foot for long distances to marshalling points to join their units, and again after being dumped off trains at railheads and stations far from Olmutz. Supply logistics were another issue for the Austrians, whose planning for the requisitioning and delivery of food, ammunition, horses, cannon, and all the necessities of a military campaign were largely non-existent and became the product of improvisation, as contrasted with the meticulous planning and execution under von Moltke's direction. Therefore, Benedict had to wait, not move, while his army swelled to over 200,000 around Olmutz. While the Austrians waited and massed, von Moltke and the Prussians moved, invading and advancing methodically into and through the Bohemian mountain passes. The lack of mobility of the Austrian army in the critical opening stages of the invasion has often been blamed on Benedict's indecisiveness, but in truth the problem was far more deep-seated than that. Austrian sluggishness that squandered a golden opportunity was due to lack of adequate rail transport, planning, and logistics that should have been done in the years before the war. In this, Austria was not exceptional among the European great powers. France would do little better a few years later, and Italy would do no better in this war and was defeated for the same reasons by the Austrians. It was Prussia that was exceptional and reaped the benefit in this war and the Franco-Prussian War that would follow. Prussia, as a small power compared to Austria and surrounded by hostile German states allied to Austria, had to gamble and throw everything into a single roll of the dice, much as Germany would do in 1940 for the same reason. Prussia and Germany were in a grave and unfavorable position that required extraordinary planning and breathtaking audacity to survive and succeed. Austria, with its immense latent resources in size and manpower, had little motivation to innovate or dare anything. Yet Austria had learned one great lesson from the defeat at Solferino that it, addre- that it had addressed during the seven-year interval, the value of massed rifled artillery. In the years leading up to the war with Prussia, Austrian foundries had designed and produced excellent quality rifled artillery in great numbers, which it would use to deadly effect at Königgratz, as the Prussians would come to find out. This advantage, had it been exploited to the fullest, could have and nearly did overcome the Dreyse needle gun, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. As Benedict broke camp on June 18th and began moving his army north and west to engage the Prussians, He did detach small formations ahead of the main army to locate and engage the Prussians as they came out of the passes. But they were too small to effectively stop or even slow their advance, in most cases. 
In a series of small engagements, these Austrian formations were brushed aside or forced back toward Benedict's main army, while the distance between von Molke's three separate armies became less and less. At only one engagement at Trotenau did Baron Ludwig von Gablenz's Tenth Corps defeat and repel the Prussian First Corps and Reserve Cavalry of the Prussian First Army as it emerged from the mountains. But even that victory was short-lived and achieved at great cost in casualties. Interestingly, however, Gablenz's victory was achieved through the use of his massed artillery, while the heavy losses sustained by the Austrian shock columns was inflicted by the Dresa needle gun. Nonetheless, Prussian columns emerging from the mountains on his right and left forced Gablenz to quickly retreat, rendering his victory strategically meaningless. On June 22nd, von Molke felt the time had come to concentrate his forces. By then he, the king, and his staff had moved from Berlin to the headquarters of the Second Army in Bohemia. He ordered the two armies under his direct control, the Second and Elba armies, to concentrate at the town of Giessen. The Second Army under Prince Frederick Karl reached the town in piecemeal stages, where he encountered the Austrian First Corps under Count Edward Klamgallus and the late-arriving Allied Saxon Army under Crown Prince Albert of Saxony on June 29th. This battle raged for three days and ultimately cost the Austrians some 5,000 casualties to the Prussians roughly 800. You begin to see the pattern now and what the needle gun can do. Eventually, Klamgallus and the Saxon crown prince were forced to withdraw and successfully broke contact with the Prussians on July 1st. Von Molke was momentarily unsure exactly where the main Austrian army under Benedict's command was in relation to his own, and so continued his concentration at Giessen until the Elba army and the second army were amassed. Yet these two armies constituted only about half the manpower of Benedict, who was now less than a day's march away, due east, at Königgratz. Likewise, off to the north and east was the other half of the Prussian army, under the crown prince, still probing and marching through and out of the mountain passes, some two days' march away. Once again, the opportunity was presented to Benedict to attack one half, or the other, of the invading Prussian army, either moving decisively to the north of Königgratz to smash the approaching First Army, or, even more inviting because of its closer proximity, move due west and engage and envelop von Molke's Second and Elba armies. He did neither. And here we see the fatal incompetence and loss of nerve that would prove fatal to an Austrian army that had within its grasp the ability to have decisively defeated the invading Prussians. Apparently dismayed by the series of small defeats inflicted on his outlying corps by the emerging First Army and the heavy defeat and casualties suffered at Giessen, Benedict panicked. He telegraphed the Emperor advising him to quickly sue for peace, which was received in Vienna with some shock and amazement. 
You may remember only a few days before, the Austrians had utterly defeated the Italians at the Second Battle of Custoza, and so morale was rather high in Vienna at that point in time when this shocking telegram arrived. The emperor and his personal military staff could not imagine how the field marshal could suddenly have so little confidence in himself and the northern army without even having seriously engaged the Prussians. Well, there was no question of sacking Benedict on the eve of what surely would be the battle to decide the fate of the German nation. But the emperor did sack Henningsen, whose miserable operational plans were regarded with contempt and outrage by the emperor's military advisers. The emperor responded to Benedict's plea for an armistice with a polite but firm refusal and sent him a new chief of staff, Baumgartner, but he only arrived on July 3rd, the day of the battle, too late to be of any real assistance. After receiving the emperor's reply, commanding him to stand and fight, Benedict essentially resigned himself to the task of actually fighting the Prussians as best he could. His mindset, however, was now purely defensive. He determined to assemble his army on the heights between Königgratz and Sadova, looking out and down on the river Bistritz with the Elba River behind him. One of his subordinates, the Archduke Wilhelm, in charge of the precious rifled artillery, carefully arranged several massive batteries on the edge of the bluffs around Chulm, facing the approaching Prussians in the west. Clamgallus and Prince Albert had linked up with the northern army soon after their defeat, and together with the other corps under Benedict's command, made up a front of some eight miles from south to north. Thus the Battle of Königgratz which began at 7 a.m. on the morning of July 3, 1866, would see von Moltke's second and Elba army pushing east, crossing the rather small and shallow Bistritz River, while the crown prince was off to the north and east somewhere with the first army. The crown prince would approach Benedict's forces from Benedict's right flank to the north, or from the north, I should say, but at the moment, he was nowhere near von Moltke. Although the Bistritz was not a formidable obstacle for infantry and cavalry that could wade or swim across this small tributary of the nearby Elba, it was still a small river. Tellingly for the Prussians, the Bistritz was an obstacle for their artillery, which they would leave behind as they crossed, for the time being, as Prince Frederick Karl's second army pushed across in ever-increasing numbers. Von Moltke did not approve of Prince Friedrich Karl's push across the river with his infantry, knowing that the troops would be moving largely unsupported and unprotected by their smooth-bore and shorter-range artillery. Furthermore, they were now moving into the range of the superb Austrian artillery. He wanted to wait until the Crown Prince's first army arrived on the field in Benedict's flank, naturally, and gently reminded Prince Karl, after the battle, that frontal assaults generally fail unless there is a simultaneous flanking maneuver underway. 
Here, however, the curious institution of monarchy in the 19th century intervenes for the first time. While technically the highest commander for the Prussians on the field, entrusted by the king himself with command, socially von Molke was far outranked by the two princes of Hohenzollern blood who led two of the three armies involved. As great as von Molke was, he would use his authority quite sparingly when it came to these royals, and this was one time when he did not do so and would regret it. So let me talk for a moment about the geography and topography of the battlefield, bearing in mind that most of you listening will not have a map in front of you. What the Prussians beheld as they crossed the river was a fairly flat plain directly in front of them, which then quickly rose into a line of ragged bluffs and hills ahead of them. To their left was the Svib Forest, a dense, thick wood that would be the site of some of the most deadly fighting that day. It could provide cover from Austrian artillery as the Second Army spread out laterally to the left after crossing the river. A road through the battlefield linked Sadova to their rear, with the fortified city of Königgratz far to their front and to the right. More clumps of wood and rolling hills lay to their right, and still behind the river in relative safety was Bittenfeld's Elba army facing the Saxons and General Weber's Eighth Corps, situated mainly between another wood uh, known as the Prim Forest and the village of Problas, which was also located up and behind bluffs. Arrayed against them was the entire might and manpower of the Austrian Northern Army, ensconced on the top of the bluffs behind long batteries and firing lines of rifled cannon. It had been placed in a fairly compact horseshoe pattern, with both flanks withdrawn at the outset. The army itself stood from right to left, watching the Prussians around the villages of Problis, Langenhof, Chulm, Lippa, and Maslaved. Behind them were two reserve corps of infantry and four divisions of Austrian cavalry, reputed then to be among the best in Europe. To drive the Austrians off their heights and their position in a frontal assault, the Prussians would have to first cross a fairly unprotected field in the face of massed cannon, then scramble up the bluffs to face massed Austrian infantry supported by cavalry to the rear, ready to exploit any opening to envelop isolated groups of Prussian soldiers or chase them down and massacre the fleeing ones. No wonder Benedict had regained his composure and felt quite confident he could repulse the Prussians and inflict serious casualties on them to boot. Benedict had employed a similar strategy against the Italians at Solferino, beating off successive waves of attacks until the moment came to rout them, as he did then. Yet there was a deep flaw in Benedict's plan, and that was time. He had time, but only a matter of hours, before the crown prince, now alerted by von Molke, hurried down from the north to join the battle. In fact, he would have until about two o'clock in the afternoon to accomplish the defeat of the half of the Prussian army that he faced. Sure enough, 
As the Prussians crossed the river, the Austrians began a deadly bombardment of shrapnel and bombs that, as the day went on, reached such a rapid rate of fire, not seen again until the massive artillery barrages of the First World War. With great bravery, the Prussian infantry took cover as best it could. An entire division under General Bolin headed for the Svib forest and the cover that it would provide. The Austrian general, Eduard Festetic, and his chief of staff, Anton Molinari, leading the Austrian 4th Corps on the withdrawn right flank, watched this development with interest. They quickly determined that they could confront and flank Bolin's division in and around the Svib forest if they moved forward and, if successful, begin rolling up the Second Army's left flank or even begin an encirclement if they could reach Sadova to their rear. Without orders, they did so. Within a short time, their thrusts erupted in, into violent combat with the 4th Corps' superior numbers and bayonets against the Schnellfeuer and wooded cover that the forest provided the Prussians. Festentik himself was wounded in this battle, losing his foot to shrapnel from the nearby Prussian artillery on the other side of the river. Molinari had to assume command and did so brilliantly, continuing to chase the Prussians back towards Sadova. Slowly but steadily, the Austrians pushed through the Svib forest, taking casualties but inflicting them as well. Bonin's division gave ground until it was largely pushed out of the woods and into the rain of artillery thundering down from the heights by Ludwig Gablenz's batteries. By mid-morning, the situation had become critical, with the crown prince still nowhere in sight. King Wilhelm himself was nearly struck by a cannonball on his way back to headquarters after observing Bolin's plight, and told von Molke, quote, We're losing this battle. At that moment, von Molke had had enough. He vetoed any further advance by Prince Karl and moved to simply consolidate the beachhead on the opposite side of the river. Bittenfeld's Elbe army, far to the right of the Second Army, had itself begun a crossing of the river, but were immediately set upon by the Saxons and the Austrian left, and sent fleeing backwards to safety behind the river. Now was the moment for the coup de grace by the Austrians. Reinforcing Molinari, while at the same time advancing down off the heights into the front of the Second Army, would probably have won the day. True to von Molke's own thinking, with a flanking attack underway, a direct attack by even half of Benedict's numerically far superior infantry, was very likely to succeed. Yet in the crucial hours between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., Benedict declined to do so, despite the pleas of his subordinates. Molinari asked for support from Ramming's Sixth Corps to his left and rear, around Lippa, and Goblins's Tenth Corps, idling behind its massive artillery battery before Cholm. None was forthcoming. The reason? Benedict had by then issued orders for Molinari to retreat back to the security of Masloved, and ordered his generals to stand firm. While willing, and seeing the wisdom of Molinari's request, both Ramming and Goblins declined to move without permission from the field marshal. Aghast at Benedict's orders, Molinari at first refused to obey, continuing his advance despite increasing resistance and casualties from the Second Army to stiffen what remained of Bolin's retreating division. 
He personally rode the distance between where his men were to Benedict's headquarters to attempt to persuade Benedict to rescind his order and join in the attack in the center as precious time ticked by and the crown prince approached the sound of cannon in the distance. It was almost a retake of Waterloo, with von Molke taking the place of Wellington, hanging on for dear life, while the crown prince took Blucher's place and was approaching the flank to apply the final blow. Except that at Waterloo, Napoleon had at least launched a desperate attack with his imperial guard on Wellington's center uh, to break him, while here Benedict simply sat still. Benedict's dogged refusal to commit his army to sweep the Prussian and then the Elbe armies off the field before him is one of the great military mysteries of history. His indecision mystified his commanders that day and was a major indictment against him in the court-martial that followed the battle. Despite all the mistakes and failures of the Austrian army to that moment, the situation might have been saved had Benedict acted, but he didn't. We can only speculate today at this ruinous refusal to grasp the nettle and go for it. The rest of the battle unfolded predictably enough after that, with more and more short-range but effective Prussian artillery moving across the river and providing ever greater support to the Second Army's left flank Molinari's advance came to a grinding halt and indeed began to be cut to pieces. Now it was his turn to give ground, backing into the Svib forest himself as the Prussians poured quick rifle and artillery fire on his men and terrible casualties on both sides. Slowly, a demoralizing retreat in full view of the Austrians on the heights took place, with Molinari's flank exposed to the advanced units of the Crown Prince's First Army now moving into position. As the First Army's 110,000 troops moved onto the field, the Crown Prince and his Chief of Staff quickly sized up the situation and saw the possibility of enveloping Benedict on the heights and cutting off his retreat across the few bridges to his rear, across the Elbe River, and to the comparative safety of Königgratz itself. The situation went from bad to worse as von Molke unleashed both the Second and Elbe armies now, who advanced up the slopes and into the towns held by the Austrians and silenced the batteries. Panic set in with whole formations of Austrian infantry scrambling for the roads and fields that led to the bridges in a race with the Prussians to escape the tightening noose. By four o'clock in the afternoon, the Austrian defeat was complete and the northern army in headlong retreat back into Bohemia. Benedict again wrote the emperor, describing a, quote, catastrophe, unquote, and begging him to agree to an armistice to save his army from annihilation. talk about the aftermath of the Battle of Königgratz. Von Molke has justly received acclamation and fame that is certainly his due for this improbable victory, yet the master himself was critical of his army's failure to move quickly enough to cut off the Austrian retreat and compel the surrender of Benedict and his army. 
This would have been the kind of decisive, enveloping, annihilation battle that von Moltke would achieve at Sedan. Instead, the bulk of the Austrian army and its guns made it away from the field and broke contact with the Prussians, retreating toward Vienna to enable a last stand, if required, to save the capital. Yet the battle was politically and militarily about as complete a triumph as could be imagined in 1866 Europe. The emperor had no choice but to recall most of the southern army in Italy to Vienna, enabling the defeated but still intact Italian army to resume an offensive of its own that would, in time, potentially reach Vienna from the south, linking up with the invading Prussians from the north and east. The panic and despair of Benedict and the northern army was infectious and overwhelmed the Kaiser and and his advisors, who concluded that they had no choice but to ask for an armistice and peace with Prussia. History has judged Bismarck, the Prussian Chancellor, with genius in imposing relatively mild terms on the Austrians. No territory was ceded, but a heavy indemnity had to be paid to reimburse the Prussian treasury for the cost of the war. Nonetheless, Austria was expelled now from the German Confederation for good. Prussia annexed most of Austria's German allies and forced the remaining ones into one-sided peace treaties with equally heavy indemnities that made them into Prussian puppets when it came to their foreign and military affairs. Austria had to cede its last Italian possession, Venice, to the Kingdom of Italy, who would remain, like the crocodile in Peter Pan, still hungry for more Austrian territory that would eventually come after the First World War. Most significantly, the Austrian defeat led to the reduction of Austria from the preeminent great power in Central Europe to second-class status for the rest of its existence. Indeed, the Austrian Empire technically would cease to exist a year later, when the Habsburg Emperor, no longer strong enough to maintain imperial rule over his Hungarian inheritance, was forced to split the empire into two co-equal halves, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was born. Far from strengthening Habsburg power, the uneasy partnership between the Austrian and Hungarian halves of the empire yet further weakened it as a great power. The Habsburg dynasty, which had ruled in Europe for nearly 600 years, would fall in another 40 after another disastrous war that it would start in 1914 with Serbia after the assassination of the heir to the family's monarchy, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. As for Prussia, the Battle of Königgratz launched the unification of Germany under Prussian domination, which would be completed in the last of von Moltke's brilliant campaigns, this time against France in 1870 at the Battle of Sedan. Indeed, Napoleon III of France was so alarmed at the collapse of Austrian power, which had conveniently held Prussia in check since the Congress of Vienna in 1815, that he considered war with Prussia nearly inevitable. Prussia's rise was also viewed with unease in Russia and Britain, who realized that the balance of power that had lasted since Napoleon had now been permanently and substantially altered. To put it more dramatically, it is interesting to indulge the 
counterfactual thought of what would have happened had Austria won the battle and the war. The consequences to Italy and Prussia would likely have been harsh indeed. Franz Joseph would surely have taken the opportunity to splinter the hated Italian kingdom that had sprung up only seven years earlier and reestablish Austrian preeminence in northern Italy in one form or another. As for Prussia, an Austrian victory would have allowed a settling of accounts between the empire and Prussia that had been simmering since Frederick the Great of Prussia had robbed the Austrians of the province of Silesia in 1740, robbed them of it as the Austrians saw it. Prussia would likely have been forced to cede it back to the Habsburgs at a minimum, a new confederation with unquestioned predominant political power being exercised from Vienna, not Berlin, would also surely have resulted. Bismarck would have been forced out of office instead of remaining the Iron Chancellor in power for another three decades. No Franco-Prussian war and the resulting loss of Alsace and Lorraine to Germany, which was one of the root causes of the First World War. Königgratz was the largest battle by far fought in Europe between the defeat of Napoleon and the First World War, with some 450,000 men actively involved. Austria lost some 32,000 casualties in the battle that day, while the Prussians lost nearly 10,000. It was the key stepping stone for the unification of both Germany and Italy, changing the map of Europe to resemble, at least, something of what it is today. It was a conflict that could have gone either way, and in its wake, the current of history would flow. Thank you.